Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Revolution, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. Here's Pastor Nick. How many of you have ever, you've been trained for a job and go through all the training and you've been prepared to do particular tasks, but then eventually that day does come, doesn't it, when the training's over and now it's time for you to step in and, and do that job? Or how about when you become a parent for the first time? Some of you remember this, and some of you may be still looking forward to this, but what happens when you become a parent for the first time is you read all these books, and you get ready, and you get a lot of advice from other people, but eventually that day comes when you take the baby home, and then all of a sudden it's just like you and the baby, and now you got to deal with that, right? These are the kind of situations that we, we use this phrase for these kind of situations called a baptism by fire. Uh, another way of looking at it is kind of like being thrown into the deep end, right? Like you know, you've kind of seen other people swim and you know how swimming works in theory, but when you get thrown into the deep end, you actually have to do it. And that's the very situation that, the, that Jesus' disciples found themselves in here in the first chapter of the book of Acts. Jesus had been preparing and training and teaching his disciples for three years, but now the time has come Uh, where we left off last week, where Jesus has now given his final instructions to his disciples, and he then ascended into heaven. So now, whether they feel ready for it or not, it is now time for them to step up, and it's time for them to apply all these things that Jesus has taught them over the past three years. This is what we would call a baptism by fire. Uh, Right before he left, Jesus told them, he said, okay, guys, here's the mission. You're going to be my witnesses, and I want you to begin by being my witnesses right here. Uh, I want you to be witnesses with your lives and with your words. You're going to be witnesses right here in Jerusalem, where you're at right now. And then you're going to go out into the surrounding region, and eventually I want you to go to the ends of the earth and take this news of the gospel to all people. In other words, Jesus is kind of saying, okay, guys, here's the plan, here's the mission. I want you to go and change the world and tell everybody about me. All right, good? Okay, see you later. That's what he did. And so, so now here they are, and ready or not, Jesus is gone, and now he's left them with no small thing to do. This is a humongous thing that he's called them to do. And last week, we read how after Jesus ascended into heaven, his disciples just kind of stood there, and it says that they just kept staring continuously up at the sky for a long time. Jesus was gone. Now, in one way, it they might have just kept staring at the sky because they just saw something amazing. But on the other hand, I kind of think that they also kept just staring up at the sky because they couldn't believe that now they were really on their own. Like, what do we do now, right? Like, Jesus has always been here to tell us what to do. I can't believe he's really gone. And now what? We've got to carry out this mission. We don't even know where to begin. This revolution that's supposed to change the world, we've got to carry this out now on our own? They've been thrown into the deep end, and now they've got to swim. It's a baptism by fire. But here's the thing. It wasn't really the case, though, that they had to do this on their own. Because Jesus had promised them that when he left, he would send them what he called the helper, the helper, the Holy Spirit, to lead them and to guide them, to teach them and to empower them, just as he had always done, to to remind them and, and to push them forward. Not only that, again, he said the Holy Spirit would empower them for this mission that he had called them to do. In other words, he had given them a calling, and he's also giving them the means to carry out that calling through the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper, he was talking about 
kind of telling them, guys, I'm really going to go. And we read there in the Gospel of John that Jesus went so far as to tell his disciples that it was actually better for them that he go away. Because he said, if I go away, then I will send you the Holy Spirit in my place. Now, it must have been pretty difficult for the disciples to really accept what Jesus was saying there when he told them that it would be better for them if he went away. I mean, how could that possibly be better for them? How could it be better for them to not have their friend, their teacher, their leader physically by their side as he had been for the past three wonderful years? I mean, even for me, I don't know about you, but for me, it's hard to comprehend how anything could possibly be better than having Jesus by my side in the flesh to talk to and get instruction from. I've never had that, but I envy these disciples who did have that. But yet Jesus says, it is better for you that I go. See, the reason it was better for them that Jesus go away was because Jesus had another baptism by fire in mind for these disciples. Way back when Jesus began his ministry, there was a man on the scene. He was actually a cousin of Jesus. His name was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was a, he was a wild man. He was a radical man. He lived out in the wilderness. He's kind of like what we would think of in Colorado as like a, a mountain man. Like if you've ever been up to Ward, right? People who just live in shacks and they've got like beards and they just eat brutes and stuff like that. He lived in the wilderness and he wore clothes made of animal skins and he survived by eating wild honey and locusts, right? So you can just imagine this guy with this crazy look in his eyes. He's got this big scraggly beard. He's got bug legs hanging out of his teeth, right? And he's, he's calling people to repent. If I saw a guy like that walking up to me in the wilderness, I'd probably want to repent too. I'd do whatever he told me to do. And he says, repent of your sins and you need to turn back to God because God is going to send the Messiah soon. The Messiah is coming, and you need to get ready. So John's job, John the Baptist's job, his mission was to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. But interestingly, this is what we read that John told people. We read this in two of the Gospels. He says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so today we're going to see the fulfillment of that. We're going to study these events that happened around the day of Pentecost when the disciples received a baptism by fire in more ways than one. So please read with me, if you would, from Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Then they, that's the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So all these disciples... They, they returned to Jerusalem. Remember, that is what Jesus told them to do. He said, I want you to return to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which was this baptism with the Holy Spirit. So they returned to Jerusalem just as Jesus told them to do. They're obeying Jesus, which is always a good thing to do. And they're together in one place, perhaps even in the same upper room where they had shared the Last Supper. It's imaginable that that's where they went. And we read in the next verse, in verse 15, that there were about 120 of them gathered in this upper room. Now, they've been given a mission to go and change the world, to go to the ends of the earth. But, but look at this. There's only 120 of them. What can they do? They don't have anything. They don't have any money. They don't have any technology. Nobody knows who they are. How are these people going to change the world? 
But among these 120, there are some interesting names that are worth taking note of. First of all, we read that there were 11 disciples. Remember, you got the original 12 minus Judas, who betrayed Jesus, and then after he betrayed Jesus, tragically committed suicide. So we've got 11 disciples, that's 12 minus Judas. Then we also read that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. This is interesting, because this is actually the last mention we have of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the entire Bible. We don't read anything about anything else she did. We don't read anything about her death. This is the last time Mary's mentioned, and I love this. Look what she's doing here the last time we see her. She's in a prayer meeting, praying and waiting to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the most interesting one, though, that we read is that Jesus' brothers were there. Now, this is reference to Jesus' half-brothers, right? Because they're the children of Joseph and Mary who were born after Jesus was born. And, uh, and we know that some of these men, we know who some of these men were because they actually became leaders later on in the Christian church. Uh, some of these men were James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's the one who wrote the book of James. We've also got Jude who wrote the letter of Jude. Now, there are several mentions of Jesus' brothers in the Gospels, but what's interesting is that when you read through the Gospels during Jesus' ministry, it seems that his brothers did not receive him as the Messiah. They didn't believe him. In fact, it says that they, they treated him and considered him to be kind of nuts and out there and crazy. I mean, it must have been very difficult growing up with a brother who claims to be the Messiah. I mean, on one hand, if you have a brother, you might uh, think, if my brother claimed to be the Messiah, I might be a little bit skeptical. I can kind of understand. On the other hand, you know, you grew up with this guy who is living a, a sinless life, and you can imagine what it's like growing up in that household, right? Like how many times do you have to hear your parents say, why can't you be more like your brother, right? Why can't you be more like Jesus? Look at him. But, but now you see that after his death and his resurrection, Jesus' brothers now believe. They've been converted. Now they their relationship with Jesus has changed. Not only now is he their half-brother, but now they know him in a different way. They know him as the Savior. They know him as their Lord. And these brothers of Jesus have been convinced by his life and death and resurrection. They too are in the upper room waiting for what Jesus has promised them, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in order that they might be filled that they might carry out this enormous task of taking the gospel to the people and leading a worldwide revolution. And we read that they were gathered there with one accord. It must have been very difficult for them to share one car between all those people. This is a joke I only get to make when I teach this book, so I'm just going to go for it, okay? So like, I mean, 120 people with one accord. Kind of like, you know, it's kind of like at the circus. You see how many uh, clowns you can fit in a, in a uh, Volkswagen? Well, how many disciples can you fit in one accord? 120. That's the answer. My wife and I have had to share a car before. It was also a Honda. But, uh, you know, I realize this is a midsize. We got kind of a compact. But, I mean, it must have been difficult. I realize you don't have to drive much back in the day. But only to have one accord between 120 people, that's, uh, that's tough. All right, I'm done. But, but the fact is that these people, thank you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. The fact is that these people uh, were together in the same place, and they were all in one accord, and it's actually somewhat of a, a small miracle in itself that they were in one accord. Because if you look at these disciples throughout the Gospels, 
They're often arguing. They're often bickering with each other. They're often kind of at each other's throats. But, but here, they're together in one place with one focus and in one accord. That's a big deal because Jesus' disciples, they hadn't always got along. And a big part of the reason why they didn't get along is because they were so different. Jesus had purposefully chosen people from really different walks of life to be his disciples. I mean, they, they had different political views. They, some were educated, some were not. They had different occupations, different, they were from different strata of society. Jesus had purposefully chosen a diverse group of people to be his disciples. He chose some simple fishermen. He also chose tax collectors who would have been educated people, but they were people who supported the Roman occupation of Israel, even if not in theory, they did it in practice by collecting taxes for the Romans. And then he chose this other guy. He's maybe my favorite that he chose. He's like Simon the Zealot. This would be the equivalent of today, like a Black Panther or a skinhead. I mean, these are political radical. And what the zealots did is that they so opposed the Roman occupation of Israel, they would carry these little hooked daggers and they would, their goal was to assassinate Roman officials by sneaking up on them and killing them. That was kind of what the zealots did. They were trying to incite this kind of chaos to overthrow the Roman Empire. So Jesus chose one of those guys to be his disciples as well. You know, you can imagine that there you got the tax collector guy who supports the Roman Empire, and then you got the zealot guy over here who likes to kill people like the tax collector, and Jesus says, okay, now we're all going to be one group together. I'm going to make you family. These are people who, apart from Jesus, would have had nothing to do with each other. Jesus brought these people together, and he called them to follow him, and as they followed him, he gave them a new identity. And that's so important. Formerly, these people had found their identity in their jobs, in their political views, things like that. But Jesus gave them a new identity, one that superseded politics, one that superseded occupations or levels of education. Their new identity was that they were disciples of Jesus. And this is something that has characterized Christianity since the very beginning, that people of diverse backgrounds, people from different parts of society, they set aside their differences and they come together because they receive a new identity in Jesus Christ, an identity not based on their achievements or credentials or lack thereof, but based on what Jesus Christ has done for them and who God has made them to, or who Jesus has made them to be before God. And they unite around one mission to bring the good news of the love of God and Jesus Christ to the world. Please read with me from verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So Peter stands up here in this assembly, and he says two things about Judas. First, he says, what Judas did by betraying Jesus was terrible. But Judas's evil deed did not thwart or spoil God's plans. In fact, God used what Judas did to fulfill his plans that he had had from eternity. 
Because the scriptures had to be fulfilled. The Old Testament scriptures said that the Messiah would be betrayed and that he would suffer and that he would die for the sins of the people. So Peter is pointing out something to these people. What he's doing is he's pointing out to them the providence of God in their current circumstances. The message of God's loving providence, it really is such an important message that all of us need to hear. That God is bigger than evil. I hope you know that in your life today, that God is bigger than evil, that God can use even bad things for good because God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Do you know that? Do you really know that in your life? Do you know that the things in your life that have happened, the bad things, the evil things, God is bigger than those things and he loves you so much that he can use even those bad things that have happened to you, even the bad things that you may have done yourself. He can use them for good and for the fulfillment of his plan. That's providence. And Peter points out to these believers the loving providence and the grace of God in their current circumstances. The second thing that Peter says is that he quotes from two different psalms and he says, guys, here is what God's word says about what we're experiencing right now. Wow, what a pastor, right? That's what pastors are supposed to do. Here's what God's word says about our current situation. And this is a side of Peter we've never seen before. We've seen Peter the fisherman. We've seen Peter the guy who's more enthusiastic than he is intelligent. But we've never seen Peter the Bible scholar before. We've never seen Peter the pastor. We've never seen Peter the preacher. But here's what's happened. As this simple fisherman, as he spent time with Jesus over the course of three years, guess what? He became a student of the Bible. And he became a pastor because he had been pastored by Jesus. And he saw how Jesus had pastored him and pastored others. And he picked that up. And he became a preacher because now, guess what? He's got a message to share that he can't not talk about. And for three years being with Jesus, Peter is now a changed man. After three years of spending time every day with Jesus, Peter has become Well, a lot like Jesus. He's doing things now. He's saying things that Jesus would have done, that Jesus would have said. And you know that? Do you know that? That the people that you spend a lot of time with, that you will become like them? It's kind of inevitable. That's why it's so important for us to be intentional about who we spend our time with, the people that we surround ourselves with. If you spend time with Jesus like Peter did, inevitably you will become more like him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul the Apostle, he says that as we behold Jesus, as you look to him daily, you are being transformed more and more into his likeness. And you know what? There's nothing better than to be like Jesus. Really, Jesus was the embodiment of everything that's good and true and desirable. He was strong, he was compassionate, he was gentle, he was fierce, he was happy, he was joyful, he was lighthearted, but he was also serious. He was attentive, he was full of love, he was full of the light of life. He was heroic, he was gracious, he was pure, he was everything that you find attractive and endearing in other people. Jesus was and is all of those things. And to be like him is really what all of us ultimately desire to be. It's what we desire, it's what we look for in other people. And and see, with Peter, the way to become like Jesus is to spend time beholding him. Jesus takes roughneck fishermen and turns them into scholars and pastors and preachers and people who change the world. He takes corrupt tax collectors. He takes skinheads and and people who stab other people and he makes them honest men who love God and who love people more than they love money or themselves. And he will take you from the person you are right now and he will make you more like him 
as you spend time with him. But you know what's interesting, right, is that there might be a sense in which you think, well, if I become more like Jesus, well then, if he's making all of us be more like Jesus, then he's gonna just, we're all just gonna be kind of monolithic, right? We're all just gonna be the same and we'll lose the things about us that are unique. But you know what, that's not true. As Peter became more like Jesus, he didn't cease to be Peter, but you know what? He became the truest Peter that God created him to be. It was by being around Jesus that Peter became the fullest, truest version of Peter that God created him to be. The Peter we've seen before, the Peter who denies Jesus, the Peter who, who returns to fishing because he's depressed, right? That Peter is only a shadow of the Peter who we know and love because that's the Peter who God created him to be. And when you give your life over to God and you say, Lord, I'm yours, you don't need to be afraid of losing what makes you unique. No, much to the contrary, it is only in giving your life to God that you can become the true person who God created you to be. So Peter says here, we need to replace Judas. Now think about everything they've done so far. So far, everything they've done has been great. It's been exemplary, right? Okay, so they've obeyed Jesus. That was the first thing. That's good. So then they were united, and that's awesome. And then they prayed together, which is also very good. And it says that they sought God's will in the scriptures. Well, this is all good, right? Well, okay, it's all good until now, but here's where it gets a little bit weird from verse 21. So one of the men who has, have accompanied us during the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know, you who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, some people look at this, and they say, oh, wait a second here. So you're telling me that they basically rolled dice in order to determine who the next apostle should be. Are you kidding me? Like, they pulled straws. And, hey, one of them's going to win, and this guy wins, so he's the next apostle. You're like, is that really how we choose apostles, right? That seems kind of strange. Now, what they did was they, they used some criteria and they narrowed it down to two men, and they determined that these men were qualified for the job, Joseph and Matthias. And they said, okay, God, which of these two do you want it to be? And then they rolled dice. Now, here's the thing that makes it more interesting. A little bit later in the book of Acts, we're going to read about a man named Paul, and Paul is going to become an apostle. Now, there are some who think that this whole picking of Matthias by rolling dice and narrowing it down to two guys and rolling dice between them, that that was a big mistake. A lot, there are some people who think that. Uh, they think that these guys were correct in discerning that someone needed to take Judas's place, but that they were incorrect, they were wrong about how they went about it, the process. Because they tried to, they, they put this situation in place where God had to choose between one of the two options that they set forth for God to choose from. And it's quite possible, at least this is the argument, that, that who God really chose was Paul to fill this role. But these guys didn't know about Paul and they didn't think that far ahead. So rather than waiting on God to do his thing and his timing, they forced this decision to happen and they picked a new apostle by rolling the dice. Now, I don't know. 
I don't know if that's the case or not. But to make it even more interesting, in the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, we read this, that the names of the 12 apostles are written on the 12 foundations of heaven. Did you catch that? 12 apostles. Kind of makes you wonder, right? Because uh, it looks right now, like if you add Paul to this mix, it looks like we got 13. So who is the real 12th apostle? Is it Matthias or is it Paul? It's just something we're going to have to check out when we get there. If you get there before me, then I I encourage you to go check it out. There's a sense in which Paul himself says that he is an apostle, but he's different than the other apostles. He says it's like he was born born out of due season, right? He was born later because he's a little bit different in the sense that he did not walk with Jesus like some of these, uh, like all these other apostles did. And even also more interesting, there are other people after Paul who were also given the title of apostle, right? So in the end, we do have more than 12 apostles, but the question is, who are the 12? Is it Matthias or, or was it meant to be Paul? I don't know. But I do know this, that sometimes we do the same thing that these guys did. Here's what we do. We say, okay, God, I'm going to give you two options. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.